Well, good morning again. Glad that you've joined us for gathered worship this morning. And we continue in our series uh, through the Old Testament, ancient Christmas, as we walk through a number of passages. This morning we, we will turn to a familiar passage in the Old Testament before we get there. If you haven't seen already or, or recognized, maybe you've just been at home too much, but Christmas season is upon us. We know this to be true in our home because Christmas movies are on. One movie that we've watched in the past is The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. The movie's about a guy who goes through a series of events and becomes Santa. All the kids aren't here, right? He's not real, by the way. If I just ruined it. Okay. There's one Christian here. Thank you. <laughs> Movie's about this man who becomes Santa, and he's got to deliver all these packages. You, you probably know the theme, but there's one scene where he's up at the North Pole, and he looks out, and he sees a polar bear directing traffic, and he says, I, I, there's a polar bear. I just don't, I don't, I see it, but I don't believe it, he says. And then the elf there says, seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. Seeing isn't believing, believing is seeing. An interesting turn of phrase, even in a, a movie like that, to get you thinking. How we perceive the world is governed by our beliefs. Faith precedes sight. It happens in multiple ways. We will see this morning where the faith of an 8th century B.C. king was placed and, and where he put his trust and faith. And, and we can learn and hopefully learn how that misplaced trust affected him and the nation of Judah. What we believe will affect how we act, how we respond. So here's the main idea. Let's jump right to it. Desperation reveals who we're trusting in. Desperation reveals who we're trusting in. When trials come into our lives, they're defining moments to show us who we're really trusting in, God or, or something else. We turn our attention now to the book of Isaiah in our second week through this series, and we'll see the choice that King Ahaz ha- had to either trust God for salvation or trust in his political alliances for rescue. And it will be a tragic conclusion for him, but it hopefully leads us to an understanding and a promise, uh, an encouraging promise. So there's two points as we go through this. A sign is offered to strengthen his trust. This, his trust is King Ahaz. And then a sign is given for his refusal to trust in God. So those two points are, are circling around Ahaz. That's the two points that will guide our time this morning. We will center the most of our time this morning in Isaiah 7, 10 through 17, but to understand how we got there, we really need to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This will give us a good context this morning and next week, Lord willing, as we look at Isaiah chapter 9. If you remember, after the death of Solomon, Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And when we come to Isaiah 7, Judah was ruled by a wicked king named Ahaz. He was not a good dude. You find it out in 2 Kings chapter uh, 16 and 2 Chronicles. If you want to read more about him, he's not a good guy. These two kingdoms, though, in the time of history, were, were at war with each other. 
often dominated by other larger kingdoms like Assyria and Syria. The Assyrians were ruthless, violent uh, people, really like the, the Nazis of the ancient world. Their emperor wanted to conquer more kingdoms, and Palestine stood in the way. And so the, the huge nation of Assyria was ready to pounce on smaller nations, but so was Israel and other nations. There's just constant battles that are happening. And so Judah, the smaller one, was constantly living in fear of what might happen next. But that didn't cause them to call out to God for salvation, for rescue, and for help. Instead, what we find out, it causes them to turn in on themselves or to look at other political allies for rescue. But before we get there, look at Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, I want to, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the chairs, not pew, but some of the chairs there. It's on page 534. If you're not familiar looking at a Bible, turn there. We're going to just, I'm going to quickly walk through this, Isaiah 6, because it gives some context. And it's a familiar passage. You've probably heard it before. If not, it's the first time. It's a good passage. Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is really the the calling of Isaiah to, to ministry. And what Isaiah sees in these verses is the holiness and the the magnitude, the bigness of God, and and it rocks him to the core. Holiness frightens Isaiah. Why? Because he's unclean. He's unholy. Verse 4, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, This is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Uh, Isaiah is is humbled when he takes in who this God is, and he feels his unworthiness and his sin, but God gives him a way forward. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why does he focus on the lips? Because that's the tool that Isaiah will use in his ministry. He will preach. And he isn't prepared until God deals with him. So God removes his guilt. He would atone for his sin. And then he will send him in the ministry. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Essentially, he will preach and no one will listen. Who wants to apply for that job? Isaiah does. And he he asks a natural question, verse 11, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land in a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. See, God will judge his people, but he won't completely wipe them out. There will be a remnant. And so we turn now to Isaiah 7, 
Verse one, in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remilah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And so here's the threat. They know something's coming. And, and where is the king? The king's not in the city. He's actually up on the hill, and he's, at the, uh, he's inspecting the water supply. He's preparing himself and the people for an attack. It's coming. And, and what you find right away is Ahaz is not preparing himself to trust in the Lord. No, Ahaz is preparing for battle. And he's thinking in terms of of protection and stockpiling. And God wants to save him, so God sends Isaiah to him. Ahaz, King Ahaz's heart here is is faithless in God. He, he, He never thinks... He needs to go to the almighty, sovereign God for help and protection. No, he goes and does what he thinks he needs to do to protect himself. So God brings Isaiah to him. And God's real desire is that his people would trust in him for all things. And in order for people to trust in God, God must speak to them and make promises to them that he will fulfill. So that's what he does in verse four. He said to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remelah. He says to him, calm down and be quiet. It doesn't matter what your enemies are seeing, it only matters what I say. That's what God is saying. God knows about their plot to end them, and he knows that they're devising plans for for the destruction, and God isn't sweating it. He's not worried. He says in verse 7, it won't happen. And they need to trust in him. But then he gives a warning to Ahaz. Look at verse 9, specifically at the end of verse 9. Seven, or chapter 7, verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is the call for Ahaz, the king. God is telling him that the nation will survive because God will make sure of it, but Ahaz's survival depends upon his faith and trust in his sovereign God. But Ahaz doesn't believe, and he doesn't want to believe. He much prefers consternation and wringing of hands. That's what life has been for him. Life is more normal for him to frantically devise his own plans, to work his own way to save himself and his people. His lust for man-made success is his jam. That's what he's going to work towards. 
Why trust in God when I can do it myself? See, God says to him, essentially, you need to reject all alliances, all trusts with other nations, and completely trust in me. Furthermore, you need to repent of your mistrust and confirm your belief in me. Otherwise, you will be swept away like all the other nations. He's saying to Ahaz, lean on me and you will stand. But if you treat me as irrelevant, you will become irrelevant. And so what will Ahaz do? And how will God work? This is point number one. A sign offered to strengthen his trust in God. Now look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Isaiah comes to preach to Ahaz to repent and join the remnant who believe. And God is giving Ahaz another opportunity, another chance to trust in him. And he says, ask for a sign. Ask for anything and let God reassure you that he's worthy of trust. He uses a Maryism here, a rhetorical device, like when you say that, like when my kids say, I looked for my shoes high and low, which isn't true. He says, ask for anything. High, low, in between, no matter what, anything to strengthen and prove his faith in him. He is being called to trust God. And God says, I will affirm your faith through the sign. It's truly amazing when you study and read about King Ahaz that God is patient with him or frankly with any of us, especially those that continue to reject him. King Ahaz was not a good guy. In fact, he was a wicked, evil king. 2 Kings 16 says he didn't walk in the ways of God. If you ever read 2 Kings, you're doing through your reading plan, it's just like over and over and over, all these kings, right? Well, Ahaz did not follow God, and he did even worse things. He, he offered his son as a burnt offering. This guy is wicked. And here's God, sovereign Lord over the universe, giving him a blank check of insurance to further trust in him. And and God is asking Ahaz to be daring and reaching out to him in faith. And this is his last chance to show his faith in God, and he will give him a sign to strengthen it. You need to understand, though, signs confirm faith. They don't create faith. Signs confirm faith. They don't create faith. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, reading through that, you might think that this is really a humble response from Ahaz. Like, like we see real piety here with this man. I wouldn't trouble God this way. I mean, I wouldn't want to test him anyways, which was always also an issue in the Old Testament. But we will find out in verse 13, this is fake humility. This is a pseudo-faith. And ultimately, he's really testing the Lord here. He's testing his patience. He's unwilling to be convinced of God's faithfulness and refuses to listen to the preacher 
because his mind is already made up before Isaiah even opens up his mouth. You need to remember, friends, that the word of God came to King Ahaz through a preacher, Isaiah, and he refuses to listen. The same is true for you, friends. I'm sure Ahaz was annoyed with Isaiah. You would be too if your mind was already made up and what you're going to do and how you're going to live, and this guy comes to you to preach a message from God. I mean, what does this guy, who does he think he is? He's a nobody. Maybe he's not as old or mature as me. He's, he's got no credentials. And Ahaz ignores him. What about you, friend? Do you listen to the preacher before you, or are you just annoyed that he's talking? I'll be honest with you. I can handle it, friends, with God's help. If I wanted a job where everyone loved me, I would sell ice cream. (laughs) Because everyone loves ice cream. But I'm not preaching Jeff's word. I'm preaching God's word. So your rejection of this message is not a rejection of me. It's a rejection of God. So if you come in and you want to check your email on your phone or the football score or just sleep, God will deal with it. It's not my responsibility. I have one job every week, whoever the preacher is, to faithfully declare God's word and we will answer to him ultimately. But we all sit under the preached word. And what is our response to the word preached? What will you do with it? Ahaz here says to Isaiah, thanks but no thanks. I'm going to look for help somewhere else. In fact, as we learn in other passages, he's going to go to Assyria to get help. Who needs God when you can go through a little negotiating and boot-licking and bribe another kingdom to come and rescue you? I mean, God can't make a deal like I can make a deal. I'm the best deal-maker in Jerusalem. I even wrote a book, The Art of the Deal. I know what I'm doing. I don't need God. And verse 13 confirms that. Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Isaiah here is exasperated with this man's rebellion and rebukes him for testing God's patience. See, Ahaz has made his choice. He chooses himself to trust in. He won't believe in God, and he will be washed away. We need to come back to verse 9, though, in chapter 7 and and think through it just for ourselves for a moment. Faith in God is central and primary to us as humans. Faith is a God-awakened capacity to respond to him and to trust fully in Christ. Faith cannot be manufactured by us or our wills to, to generate it, no matter how bad we want it. As Ephesians 2 says, faith is a gift of God. But faith must be acted upon by us. It must be employed by the Christian. And when we employ faith, we are saying that God is more real than any other earthly thing that is before us. When we act on faith, we are saying that God is more desirable than any other living thing. 
And this is what Isaiah experiences after meeting God in chapter 6. This is why Isaiah is so exasperated with Ahaz, because Isaiah has seen God. He has observed and, and witnessed, and it's affected him. So there's nothing else but then to trust in God because he's, he's met him. And it's, it's almost of like, well, how can you not trust God, Isaiah says. And the same is true for us, friends. How can we not? If you've met God, if you understand the gospel and what God has done through Jesus Christ's Son, how can you not but trust him? See, if we are not firm in faith, we will not be firm at all. And converting to Christ, trusting in him for salvation is only the beginning of our spiritual life of faith. Living by faith in God takes time and it takes growth. And how do we learn to trust in God? It's when we're in a crisis, when we're desperate. That's when God takes the training wheels off and we learn how to ride with him. And God is saying in a crisis that what matters now is that you trust me. God's saying, I I will keep every single one of my promises for you. Charles Spurgeon said, faith laughs at that which fear weeps over. When we have faith in God, when we continue to trust in him, we have nothing to fear because God is bigger than those circumstances. And And Ahaz, King Ahaz, had an opportunity to act on his faith But when the rubber meets the road here in the midst of a crisis, he doesn't have faith at all, it seems. Not in God. That's why asking God for a sign is to confirm his faith is pointless. He doesn't have any faith in God. Instead, he's driven with more of the ability that he has to save himself. Friends, we all need saving. We all need a Savior. Ahaz turns to himself for salvation. But who are you turning to for salvation? Who will be your savior? To my non-Christian friends here this morning, I wonder what causes you the most fear in life right now. Is it not knowing what might come around the bend next week? Or the the fact that you're uncertain how to plan for the long-term future? Or perhaps it's the fear that you don't quite measure up in life with people as they pass you by, either in looks or qualifications or accomplishments. What about the fear of what might happen after this life is over? Have you thought much about that lately? There will come a day where you will stand before God and you will give an account of your lack of faith in him. And God desires to show himself faithful to you, friend. He desires to show you that he is trustworthy, that you can put your full weight of faith in him to do what he says he will do. God desires that. And so the encouragement, the implication is that you place your trust in him and you give up on all those fake saviors that you've been trusting in. 
Friend, if you haven't found God, it isn't that he's hiding from you, but that you are unwilling to place your faith in him alone, forsaking all others. So my challenge is for you to turn to Jesus Christ this morning and place your trust in him alone. And then tell someone, or better yet, come find one of us and and involve us in your walk with God. We would love to know how God is working in your life. We would love to sit down and read the word and encourage you. So we've seen a sign that's offered to strengthen his trust in God. Second, now a sign is given for his refusal to trust in God. See, God, in his word, is faithful to, to the promises that he's made. Ahaz refused a sign to strengthen his, his faith and his heart to trust in God. Instead, he chooses to trust in the king of Assyria instead of God. And God will give him a sign anyways. He'll be faithful to the remnant who will gather around Isaiah and his message. And so instead of a, a sign offered, there will be a sign imposed on Ahaz. Look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign of Emmanuel coming contained a promise as well as a threat. For Isaiah and the followers, it was a sign that God's promise of protecting them and providing for them will surely come true. But this was a sign, not as a sign for rescue for Ahaz, but a promise of judgment for his refusal to repent and to believe and to trust in God. See, what was death for Ahaz is life for those who believe. I think that the sign originally given had a single meaning but a double significance. Its meaning is that God is with us and we do not need to fear what other people may do to us. And the first significance was in fact during Ahaz's day. He didn't need to go to Assyria for help because God was with him. He was showing himself to be true and to be present. But, but Ahaz didn't want God as a savior. As, as a guide, sure, you know, God can come up on the table. There'll be a seat for him in life. But, but he's the king. He's the king of his own life. So he's not interested for God to be over his life. He, he's king. And he wasn't going to submit his, himself to anyone. One small tangent, I, I began to wonder this week if Ahaz had believed or had convinced himself that everything, every one of God's promises was riding on him. Remember, he's in the line of David. And if you go back to 2 Samuel 7 that we went to a, a year ago, God made a covenant with David. Do you remember that? 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. Then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so maybe Ahaz at this moment, knowing the history says, it's me. I'm the next in line. So I have to do these things. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to secure freedom. God, I have your back, God. I'll take care of it, God. I'm the king. So I'm the answer. You're going to use me. We all know this. And God doesn't do that. God is saying in this moment, I can bring the reign of David's godless sons to an end and start again with a virgin. 
King Ahaz thinks that he can move forward without God, but really, it's God who can move forward without Ahaz. God can and will judge the house of David, and he will still fulfill his promise to David by raising up a king from a virgin. God will defeat Israel and Aram, and he also judged Judah because of King Ahaz. Now look at verse 15 about this, this child. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house, such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim, departed from Judah, the king of Assyria." So coming back to this prophecy in verse 14, typically in Old Testament prophecies, they come with the idea there's multiple fulfillments in the present, and yet many won't see the final fulfillment until many years later, like this one here in verse 14. So who is the child? Well, it seems it's to be Isaiah's son to be born, as we find out in, in, ver- in chapter 8, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, Call his name Meher Shahal Hashbaez. For before the boy knows how to cry, If my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Now, this is the fulfillment, I believe, of verses 15 through 16. But what about the word virgin, as our Bibles translate it? Virgin does mean virgin here, but it also can mean young woman. So this verse can be applied to both. In the present, God gives a sign to Ahaz that destruction is coming, and that sign is confirmed with the child of Isaiah. And this child will grow up eating honey and curds. That's the food of poverty. That's a a sign that the economy of Judah will collapse. No matter what you think, Curds and honey are not food of paradise, as some people believe. People who are eating yogurt and cheese are not having the time of their lives. What he is saying, then, is that the Emmanuel will not come, this child will not come into the scene until Judah has gone through the darkest times, ravaged by war. And Ahaz won't receive this king. Instead, he'll get the king of Assyria, and it won't go well. Ahaz would not stand firm in faith. And so Ahaz would not stand at all. He turns away from the salvation that God had promised him, and he turns to the arms of a monster to save him. He pledges allegiance to the king of Assyria. 2 Kings 16, 7 says, So Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz rejects God and he goes to the king of Assyria. And when he does reject God, it leads him to idolatrous worship of pagan deities. We can read later in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles that he would eventually shut the doors of the temple preferring to set up altars on the street, on the corners, used not to worship God, 
but false gods. This was the way of Assyria, and Ahaz adopts their ways. And this all comes back from the simple fact that Ahaz chose to follow his own heart, his own path, instead of trusting in God. Emmanuel has no revelance to Ahaz. He, He chose a different savior than God. But Emmanuel will come in spite of Ahaz and his unbelief. Faith was not a thing for Ahaz. He'd he'd rather bribe another king. Faith, trust, dependence on God, that stuff was overrated for him. He made his bed and now he'll lay in it. One thing to note in this history is that Ahaz will be the last independent king in Judah. Every other king that would follow him would be under someone else's rule. His lack of trust and faith in God would plunge the people of Judah farther down and away from God. What you trust in will either save you or destroy you. And so how will God be faithful to his people now? Well, we come to the Gospel of Matthew. And we read a portion of it this morning at the beginning of the service. If you think of the, the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the first 17 verses are, are the genealogy to confirm that to us Jesus is the promised one. And then the last eight verses confirm to us that Jesus is, is from, truly from the line of David. As, or as Paul writes, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh. So the camera lens in Matthew 1 uh, is wide for verses 1 through 17, walking through the genealogy, but then it begins to narrow. It gives us the big picture history of salvation, but then it narrows its focus in verses 18 through 25, which was read earlier, upon this family. So look over. It's the only time I'll ask you to turn, but turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll read again the passage that was read earlier by by Trevor. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we see the, I like using this analogy, the, the pass is made in Isaiah 7. Right? You're all football fans, right? You're going to just run home and watch football. Right? The pass is made from the two-yard line, and it takes 700 years to be completed. And it's caught. 
in Matthew 1. Isn't the Bible amazing? A virgin conception of birth. That would be given to the house of David. See, there was a child born in Isaiah 8. This child was not, though, the final fulfillment of this prophecy. If we read on in Isaiah, especially in Isaiah 9, Lord willing, we'll be there next week. In Isaiah 11, we, hear, we learn of this unique child still to come. And then there will be this super fulfillment of the prophecy. When we come to Matthew 1, we read that it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God with us. God for us. You know, this is the story of the Bible. God desiring to be with his people. We saw it last week in the garden where Adam and Eve, before their rebellion, walk with God. God is with them. But because of their sin and the rebellion, a sin and rebellion that each of us have done ourselves, God is not with us any longer. How could God be with those that rejected him like Adam and Eve and and Ahaz? Those that believe they can manage just fine on their own, God can't be with them rightly in their sin. But we also see from Genesis 3 onward through the Bible, it's, it's not us trying and working to be with God, but God working to be with us again. He will go to great lengths to provide for us salvation. He would continue to be with his people in spite of Ahaz through the Babylonian captivity all the way to Matthew chapter 1. And God would make a way of bringing Jesus down to earth to be born a baby 725 years after Isaiah prophesied to King Ahaz. Jesus was born to this world and he perfectly satisfied all of God's righteous requirements. And he went to the cross to pay the price for our sins and to be crucified for us. And three days later, he rose again, conquering death, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. See, friends, God has always pursued his people. He has always been working to be with us. He is our salvation. We're going to sing that as we end. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea, and I am safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. This song's about Advent, about God coming low to rescue his people. And he's done everything necessary for us to be with him through Jesus Christ. So I want to remind ourselves, I want us to sing, not just out, not just to the front, but sing to one another, reminding ourselves of our good God and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? 
Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. That you saw fit to send a redeemer, your son, Jesus Christ, as a baby to grow up, to live among us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And you have always sought your people and you've pulled them from the messes that we are in in this earth. And you are the solid ground in our lives. So help us to walk with you, to trust in you, to rely on you when trials come. And when that final day comes for us, God, may we be found resting completely in you because you are our salvation. And we'll give you all the glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.